This morning, as we're closing out our series, Christmas is Questionable, our final scripture comes from Matthew chapter 2. And Matthew says, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and they left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled when the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized what had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeped for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judah, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let us pray. God, we know that you are God. We know that what you say is true and that what has happened with Jesus and the Holy Spirit and and creation, all of it is the ultimate truth and that it is yours. So we know that when things like this happen in scripture that it's because you orchestrated it so long ago. They're not things that happen by coincidence or things that are cool to look at. They They are your hand at work. So this morning, God, as we come together as a body of Christ, we've just lifted your name on high. We ask that your hand continues to be at work here. We know that you have been preparing a message in Mike for so long and that, God, we know he's a faithful servant of yours, that he listens to you, he's obedient, and let him preach your word today. Let him speak what you need to be spoken to these people in this room because you have words for all of us. God, this morning is about you. All about you. Let us continue to sit and rest in who you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I get to start with a celebration and an opportunity today. One celebration I really want to share with you as as we begin our our time of interpretation of Scripture is to really give praise uh, to you and thanks to God for the uh, extensive generosity that is part of your ministry. We love at Marian Methodist to give gifts that represent our faith and our love of God. And so I, I, I know last week Kelsey reported on the Christmas offering and how we're being able to use that in local mission. And today I want to tell you that since we've passed the year's end, um, it's exciting to me to, to be the leader of the 2200 soul uh, body that's called Marian Methodist and tell you that we, we achieved our goal uh, this year financially. We, we are uh, in the black as the year ended, so our uh, receipts uh, are, uh, overwhelm our disbursements. So congratulations, you are a generous church. That is uh, something to give great praise to and, and to start a year on solid footing. 
And part of that solid footing comes with the opportunity. So next week, uh, I know this is, uh, some of you that come to the 1022 service, I want to ask, <laughs> ask you to maybe consider coming a little bit early next week. Uh, a few minutes early, those of you that come uh, at our normal start time too. Uh, out here in the, uh, in the center, we're going to be having a service ministry fair, which is to say that 13 of our ministries that, that when we talk about service and ministry, we're talking about the things that keep the church going, like the ushers and the people that serve cookies on Sunday morning, the safety team, the United Methodist women, the, the music ministries, the, the, the discipleship ministries down the hall. Um, we really want to give people an opportunity to have access to sign up and ask more questions about them. So we'll have human beings at every, uh, I'm going to call them booths, uh, next week so that you might be able to, to find out what these ministries about um, because the church runs um, specifically and particularly a, a, a group this large uh, on our volunteers. And so if you've been looking for something, maybe there's some things and we don't believe in eternal commitments to these kind of ministries. We believe in eternal commitments to God. But if you sign up for something and after three months you say, ooh, this isn't me, that's okay. We still love you the same. You just say, okay, I got to go and I'm going to try something else, Okay. That's a, that's a question, okay? All right, thank you. Thank you. Just want to make sure you're still with me. All right, so new year, new opportunity. It's always kind of fun when you have an old dog that gets to try a new trick. I have never in my several decades long ministry preached on this particular text, the flight to Egypt. I don't know why. It's actually the flight to Egypt and the return back to Nazareth. So um, Here's where we go. This is the last day and the story of the Christmas season. Next week when you come in here, all this, all of our unlit candles. <laughs> Kelsey full-time, Simon full-time. Vic, Vicky leaves the building and nobody lights the candles. Pardon me for a minute while you can see why we need volunteers in the church now. I, it's kind of hard to make a big deal about lighting a Christmas candle for the last time when it's not lit, so. Yay. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. So I, uh, I do want you to make, to make opportunity to come and be a part of the church. Just pardon me while I do a little housekeeping here. You know, our director of pastoral care leaves the building. We have no idea what's going on around here. So... Um, as, as the last day and the last story of the Christmas season, this, this is it, when Joseph and Mary uh, leave, and doesn't that look better? <laughs> Amen, all right. But it's all gone next week. That was my point, that all this is going to be gone. Just like your home, when that Christmas tree comes out of the front room, you're like, whoa, we bought a big house. Um, <laughs> it just feels like that. But, but now this week, hopefully on this weekend, you know, it's Sunday, a lot of you have already had to go back to school and work, but this is kind of like the third pass-through of the leftovers, Right? And some of you have said, I am not eating any more ham or turkey, right? All that, those salads, the stuff that didn't get eat. Some of you are even throwing away Christmas cookies. I heard that. I don't know what that means, but, but we're done with leftovers after today. And at least in my house, I'm the last guy in the neighborhood because I wait till the last day of Christmas. It's after church today. I'm going to go home and unplug my Christmas lights. And everything goes back in the box, doesn't it? Or into the storage closet. Because this is the last day, and we celebrate the last story of Christmas. Now, that doesn't mean the church stops, as a matter of fact, because we do have a next thing planned. 
Um, I do want to announce that our next sermon series starting next week is going to be something called Searching for God's Reflection. Really want to invite you back to that series of messages. And if you want to prepare, every one of the messages is over the books that, as a kid in Sunday school, I learned is out of the books that we call General Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We're going to talk about topics that rise from those scriptures like, what is faith? How do we deal with our family relationships? What about my anxiety? And a few conversations about the divided world. That's next. That's next. And it's important to finish our Christmas is questionable series. Because we always finish what we start around here. And from God's perspective, Christmas is unfinished until everyone on earth comes to Christ or he comes back to bring everyone to himself. So we look at this last question. And remember, um, my questions were mostly formed after intense research at Casey's, Walgreens, and Wits End. So the last question we're going to deal with in this sermon series is, if Jesus is God, why do his parents run away? If Jesus is God, why do his parents run away? First, parental instincts are to protect children, aren't they? A lot of parents in this congregation this morning. So you know what I'm talking about. Our instinct is to protect our children. I, I, in the last week, had the blessing to be with my grandsons in Denver. And I got often the responsibility and the opportunity of walking with little three-and-a-half-year-old Titus. Have you ever walked with a -a three-and-a-half-year-old on the streets of a large city? My, my instinct are to protect that kid totally and completely because he's going through this complete sensory overload. His favorite word is, whoa, grandpa. He'll see the lights over here and then, whoa, grandpa. And we might have stocked him up with some sugary treats. I can't remember everything that we did. And this kid, I love him so much, but he, he's kind of dumb, you know. <laughs> he has a total lack of experience. He doesn't know that like, when you get out of, a, out of a, a, a commuter train that you're not supposed to skip out. You know, there's people behind that you're not supposed to just walk up to the sidewalk and just walk across the street. So you got to watch these kids every single minute, you know. And so I, I will admit this, protection is necessary. And I'd grab little Titus's hand and sometimes we'd be at the crosswalk. Somebody would push the button, he'd want to go. And I, 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 try, I truly would. I'd put my hand on him. I'd put my leg in front of him because if he started getting away, I was going to kick out his leg because... <laughs> Because I love him enough that hitting the floor there is better than getting hit by a car, even if it's a Prius, right? <laughs> but protection is instinctual for parents. It, it, we, 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 we naturally protect our children. So when we look at Joseph, the massacre of the innocents that's going on in Matthew chapter 2 was typical of Herod's extreme behavior. Josephus Flavius, who's one of the great writers of history of this period of time in his history of the Roman Empire, history of the Jews, writes of Herod's typical behavior that was tyrannical and that he would oftentimes just pick a segment of society because he was crazy with power and probably a little bit crazy because he was inbred and start killing people. Just start killing a segment of the population. As a matter of fact, in, in 7 BC, he ex- executes two of his own sons 
uh, Alexander and Arispulus, because he thought, he didn't know, but he thought they were trying to take over his crown. And then three years later in 4 BC, now 4 BC is the same timeline as we're talking about here with the murder of the children uh, that are two years or younger, toddlers and younger, that Herod thought was taking over his kingdom. He murders his own two-year-old son, Antipater, because he thought maybe he was the one. So protection from this guy is necessary. It's a natural human instinct for Joseph to want to protect his child. Now, uh, alongside that, spiritually, God is directing Joseph. God is directing Joseph because here's the thing that we don't understand as later readers of the Bible. God knows Joseph, God knows Herod's conversations. God knows Herod's thoughts. Joseph doesn't. Joseph doesn't hear those things. It wasn't like Herod put it in the Bethlehem uh, Gazette, coming this month, murder of all children under two. That's not what you would have done. So, so God knows Herod's intent, not Joseph. So three times, God nudges Joseph, speaks to him, and three times, Joseph does exactly as God directs. Look at verse 13. Kel- Kelsey read a moment ago. I'm sorry, I said, look, it's not going to be on the screen. It's in your Bible, though, so you can look at it there. Get up says God. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now that is not a short run. Even in ancient times, Israel and Egypt were a ways away, several hundred miles. So and they didn't have the ability to, you know, load up the station wagon or the, the minivan or the SUV and drive over there. So the logistics of this travel, a woman that had recently had a child, Uh, a man that didn't have much cash, and his family wandering down to Egypt. That's no small thing. Significant travel logistics. Now, after just getting there, now, um, understand this, that there would have been Jewish communities, expatriate communities in Egypt. So when Joseph arrived with his his wife and child, they wouldn't have stuck out maybe as much as you might think. Um, They would have kind of fit into a community. But Two years later, after being in most likely one of those communities, God comes back to Joseph and says, get up. Same words he said before. Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. Now, if you're a parent that had natural parental instincts, you would say, well, I'm not saying Joseph said this, but it would come to my mind. Well, okay, but this Herod business, there was lots of Herods, by the way. This Herod thing is a family business. One Herod follows another, Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa, Herod, they keep following each other. Can this news to go back truly be trusted? It, truly are they not looking for us anymore? But regardless of what his inner thoughts might be, which we don't have access in the, in the text of Scripture, Joseph goes. And then at the end of this Christmas story, it says this, having been warned in a dream, which is not the first time Joseph's been warned that way, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and went into and lived into a town called Nazareth. So what was fulfilled, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So Joseph does what God tells him to do. So I'm going to return to the original question. If Jesus is God, why do his parents run away? And I'm going to make a case that they don't run away, but they certainly do go. There's three explanations that I've come upon as to why God 
sent Joseph to Egypt when he could have taken care of him in Bethlehem. Obviously, God is God, so he could have confused the Roman soldiers. He could have confused Herod and, and those sorts of things. So let's look at the first explanation. It fulfills prophecy. In Scripture, everything sinks. Everything comes back together. Everything flows in one narrative. So we find in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus, of course, being the son. And hundreds of years before his birth, the Jews were told that, that he will come out of Egypt. So he can't come out of Egypt unless he's been there before. Secondly, although there's a dozen or so prophets, I'm just going to give you two. Isaiah 19, verse 21 so the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. Same theme repeats itself. And in that day, they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. So again, everything in Scripture syncs with everything else. Everything flows together in one thread of story. And in this part of the story, it is because it fulfills prophecy. Now, a second explanation of why God might have taken Joseph and his family to Egypt. God doesn't perform miracles when the ordinary can accomplish the same thing. We need to hear this. God does not perform miracles when the ordinary can accomplish the same thing. Joseph can evade the disaster that would be the killing of his son by traveling and restarting a life. No miracle is needed here. Ordinary action can take care of the problem that's at hand. And the same is true in our lives. Okay, I, I know some of us think, you know, and I've heard people say, well, I'm just going to trust God to take care of me. I leave the keys in my car. I leave my house doors unlocked at night. I'm like, no, don't do that. The ordinary click, take the keys, put them in your pocket, this can evade disaster too. Why do you need a miracle when a miracle is not necessary? And, and you know as well as I do, if you're going to go across the street, go ahead and look both ways for the traffic. You were taught that in kindergarten. Because looking and making sure no cars are coming is better protection than saying, well, God must want a miracle, and you just walk out in front of them. And for goodness sakes, I, I've never understood this one, and my nephew, one of my nephews, has done this. Don't stand on a perfectly good bridge, cross your arms, and say to God, protect me, and then jump off on a rubber band attached to your ankles. I've never understood that one. God bless his heart. I don't get it. It's not Dan. It's another one. <laughs> Both educated men. But, but you understand, God's not going to, God's not going to waste his miracles or his power frivolously when the ordinary can accomplish the same thing. The ordinary order of intelligence, the ordinary order of life is generally miracle enough for safekeeping and safety. And third, third explanation on why Joseph was asked to take his family to Egypt can be just said in a simple, the unseen purposes of God. God does not always divulge his plans. Not every single thing that we read about God, that we hear about God, that we feel about God's movement in the world makes complete intellectual sense to us because we are not given access to everything that's behind the veil. We're not given complete understanding of God's mind. And sometimes his purposes need to be trusted 
not necessarily understood. I have a story that goes along with this. Is I, I had the great privilege when I was a young, younger person uh, in college to play two sports in, in small college athletics. And one of them was baseball. And, and my fresh, freshman year at baseball in, in, at Iowa Wesleyan, we, we happened to have a really, really good team. And we had the opportunity to, to play Grace Long, which is a little college in South Iowa, uh, to, to move to the round that if we won that round, uh, we went to the National uh, World Series for small colleges, which was an exciting thing. And we did go there, but we got smoked there. But that's not the point of this story. <laughs> we were to play the best of three, which means you have to win two games, against a college called Grandview in, uh, in Des Moines. And we were playing at, at, a, at a place called Marshalltown, and we had used our ace, our best pitcher the day before, to win that game, to get to this game. So we had one really, really good pitcher in our quiver, and we had our, our third pitcher, who was one of those guys that one day to the next, he could really befuddle teams, and other days, he could not. We called him Barry the Flamethrower, not because he threw fast. In fact, and I know we've got a Hall of Fame baseball pitcher over here on my left, and he can tell you more about this, but because he threw a 65-mile-hour, really, that's batting practice speed, curveball. He made it look like it was coming fast. It was just this lollipop that went down like that. And when you played third base like I did, you thought, man, this could go really well because he hits these little dribbles. Oh, these guys hit rockets at us. You know, because when, when you gauge that curveball and you swung with your whole might, it was coming to the third baseman. And I kind of wished I could wear a hockey mask and, you know, those pads and stuff when Barry pitched. And this day, Barry did not have it. But fortunately, they were hitting the ball a lot further than ones the third baseman could play. And it was then in the middle of this game that, and it was kind of a, it was a day, it was breezy, it was spring, and it was cloudy and all this kind of stuff. We got behind 12 to 2, and that was the first time I realized that there wasn't a 10-run game. That you played a nine-inning game, and you played it out. And I could not understand why, with all the relief pitchers we had, that coach was letting Barry pitch and pitch, and they were just lighting him up and lighting us up. When it got 19 to 2, I came off the field as the eighth inning. I said to coach, coach, seriously. He says, trust me. I said, well, that's stupid. <laughs> Behind 19 to two. Well, anyway, the end of the ninth inning starts sprinkling a little bit. And then it starts pouring. We finished that game. They called the next game and they said, look, it's gonna rain for two days straight. We'll see you back here on Saturday. By Saturday, both our ace and our second pitcher were ready to go, and we won both games nine to nothing. And went on to the national tournament. I did not understand what Coach Nelson had up his sleeve, but it was not mine to understood. It worked perfectly, and it made no sense to those of us that were playing. Sometimes, and this is really hard for us in life, God's mysterious plans are out there, and they're working perfectly, but we don't understand them. And so we have to yield to them because as they work out, even though we don't always see it at first, even though we might be taking it on the chin for this reason or that reason, one specific part of our life and not another, they're always working together for good for those who love the Lord. Joseph doesn't run to Egypt. He may not understand anything about it because God didn't say everything that was in his plan. He said, get up and go. Joseph faithfully follows and responds to God's 
direction. So, so as we come towards our communion table, I, I want to talk about your opportunity for 2020 to faithfully respond to God's direction. I'm not going to talk about resolutions and all that. You can do that or have done that on your own. I really want to talk about what things that we might need to respond to that God is directing us to. What are the nebulous nudges you're receiving? And by nebulous nudge, I, I don't mean that big shove that comes across your soul. Sometimes there's those things that, and somebody recorded that between first service and next that said, okay, this is the third time I've felt this, so that must be a nebulous nudge of God. What are those things that, that God seemingly keeps putting in front of you that you think, I should probably do something about this, or I should probably call them, or I should probably fill in the blank, start this Bible study, or, or begin serving over here. What, what is it that's unspoken, but certainly is stewing within you, and the more you listen to it, the more you think this might be of God, not just simply a good idea of mine. You won't get it all explained to you. But almost every single one of us here has some of those nudges going on in our spirit that we need to say, how am I going to respond to them? And, and there's even others of us that we have to think, what are the obvious signs right in front of us? What has God put right in front? You know, it's, if you came in this morning and you said, I wonder what church is about, you should have been able to look at the table here or here, not the unlit candles, but the bread and the juice, and say, I believe the center of this worship service is Holy Communion. What are the obvious signs that God is putting right in front of you? That he's challenging you. That he's saying, this is obvious. Well, one of our friends here, he's over there in the back, says, sometimes God hits me with a four by four. So what's the four by four that God is swinging away on you with? You really need to ponder this. And we're going to take opportunity here because on the last Sunday of Christmas, our opportunity comes at Holy Communion. And we've, we've actually provided enough minutes here to execute this fairly well. Because really, two questions, and I encourage you to either you know, put them in your memo or when they both come up on the screen, to you know, take a screenshot of it so that you can think about this beyond these moments. And in, in this Holy Communion moment, first... I hope as you come down, that you simply ask the question, how is God directing me? How is God directing me right now in my life? What should I be digging deep in my own soul to figure out, God, what are you directing me to? It's a brand new year. I know that's kind of a made up thing, the calendar and all that kind of stuff, but we do like fresh starts and so we should claim them when they come. But God, what are you really directing me to this year? I, I don't have the answer for you, but the Lord does. But the Lord is directing you consistently, persistently, and constantly, saying things to you, nudging you, saying, and your responsibility is when you're kneeling here or sitting back in your pews, when you still have the taste of the bread and juice uh, in, on, on your lips or in your, in your mouth, God, how are you directing me? To take that question seriously, really seriously, not let it just be something, oh, Mike said that and we ought to think about this. And then last, and we'll go right to communion. What will I do about it? The beautiful thing about the scriptural story is this. You can go ahead, take your phones out, take a picture. I want that. I want you to be thinking about this, praying about this. Our, our scriptures are completely 
saturated with human beings that had God directing them to do a certain thing that you've heard about. And the only reason that you've heard about them is that they did it. Because if they would not have done it, you would have never heard about them. The specific purposes that God has for us, for you, for me, in our lives, are things that we are to learn about, understand that God is directing us to them, and then go about doing them. We are long on wish and hope and should and need to grow ourselves in do, did, and done in relation to our Christian faith. I know God's speaking to you. I saw it happening at the first service when we had some just linger for many minutes here. I know specifically God is directing me to two things. I'm trying to work out some of it down here, working it elsewhere right now. How about you? How about you? So I don't like to just talk about something and then not do it. So the offer and the invitation is to you. In this church and all Methodist churches, Holy Communion is an open table. So if you're visiting with us or if you're looking at this as maybe a new faith community, um, understand this about communion. Communion is for all that love Jesus or want to love Jesus or want to meet Jesus. It doesn't matter to us if you're from some different faith community, if you have some creedal background. As long as this isn't injurious to you, we invite you to be part of us, to come and, and eat at your Lord's table. We take communion in a very simplistic way. It's called intinction. You come forward and there will be a steward there with an offering basket. And you drop your prayer cards and your offerings in them. And then with your own hand, take a piece of bread out of the trays that will be held by a steward. Uh, take it and then dip it right into the cup that one of the rest of us will be holding and receive the elements of communion. And then come forward if you, if you desire to these um, prayer rails and, and don't be in a hurry. We have lots of minutes left. There'll be a station way over there, your far right, here in the center, and way over there on your far left. If you need gluten-free, because we certainly don't want anyone to have a problem in that way, uh, there's only one gluten-free station. It's right here in the center of the sanctuary. Go ahead, feel confident to make your own way <clears throat> to it, and then still make <clears throat> your way to the kneeling rail. And if you're part of our homebound communion, because we believe that communion is not just a moment here, but it's an extension of the church, um, those elements are there on the, uh, my far right, your far left. Uh, you know the way to pick them up. So our communion service is as follows. And praise the Lord, we did remember the bread. Because it's a meal of memory. And the Lord, on his last night with his disciples, took, broke the bread. And remember him because he said, remember me. Every time you eat bread, remember me. Remember what I've done for you. Remember what I've taught you. Remember how I've healed you. And remember how I've called you. Remember me. And after the supper, everyone had had their fill. Lord Jesus took the cup. He gave thanks to his Father in heaven. And then he said, drink from this, all of you. For in this cup is the wine which represents the blood which is shed for you and for many. As often as ye eat bread, drink this wine, and remember me. And so we remember. 
We remember the call that God has in our lives. We remember the direction that he's given us. And we remember that those are not empty thoughts or empty nudges or empty directions that God gives us. They are things we are to pursue in our lives. So give us just a second to get set in our various places. And then when you're ready, come eat, come drink at your Lord's table. This is for you.